0: Good morning, everyone, and a very Merry Christmas. Yeah, Sorry if I haven't got to meet you personally yet, because I am usually out with the kids, uh, running around and teaching them. Uh, do keep praying for the Sunday School. It's a very important ministry. It needs, uh, needs all of your, of your prayers. Uh, please uh, keep the Bibles open at the, the gospel reading that we just looked at uh, just now on page 962, Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at that for the next uh, little while. As usual, there is an outline of the talk in the middle of the bulletin. And be really helpful if you could take that out and uh, follow along uh, there as well. As we come to God's Word, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together once again this morning to remember the coming of Christ as our Saviour and King. And so, Father, as we read your word once again now, we pray that you will continue speaking to us by your Spirit. Help us to see Jesus in all his glory And help us to be those who follow him as king of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we turn this morning to the unpopular Christmas message. So that must make me, I guess, the unpopular pastor because I got to do this one. Uh, It's a message you'll never see in a Christmas cart. You'll never sing of it in a Christmas carol. It's a message you'll never see depicted in any nativity display like we've got up the back there. And you certainly will not find this story in any children's Bible. It's a ghastly story. It's not one you expect to have in the Bible. It's more comfortable, isn't it, to talk about the angels and the wise men and the shepherds and, well, baby Jesus, and not this story But it is, nonetheless, a very important story that teaches us a very important truth of the Christmas message. And that is that that Jesus and the Christmas message is not palatable to everyone. And the reality is that the message of Christmas, that Jesus came as God's King to rule over the whole world and every one of our lives, well, it's not a popular message, it's a message that divides, divides families, divides countries, divides our world. And we've seen a great example of that recently in Brunei, where public celebrations of Christmas have been banned. You, you cannot go out in your Christmas clothing with your Santa hat on in Brunei. You cannot play Christmas carols as you go to the shopping centre in Brunei. You cannot do anything Christian in public unless you want to end up with five years in jail. But it's not just Brunei, of course. Increasingly, as we look around our world, we see darkness. We see evil. We see persecution and opposition to Jesus and Christians. And it is so easy for us, I think, to fall into fear, to fall into despair and cry out, where is God in our dark world? But I hope we will see this morning, against this dark backdrop of evil, sin and despair, this neglected passage gives us a glorious hope That God is indeed sovereign over every event in life, bringing salvation out of the darkness. Well, we first uh, meet King Herod at the beginning of chapter 2 before our passage today. He's called King Herod and the wise men, of course, come to King Herod in verse 2 saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod is obviously troubled because, well, Herod is the king of the Jews at the moment, and this new baby, it's not his son. This new son, Jesus, is, well, a threat, a threat to his rule. But like the best of politicians, you cannot see behind the smile. You can't even sense Herod's vicious intent at first. He asks, where's the king born? search for him, tell me, then I too will come and worship him. And so the wise men go to Jesus, exceedingly joyful as they find him. They worship him. They recognize him as king. They offer their gifts and they don't return to Herod. And so in verse 13 to 18, we see Herod's awful response. Have a look with me at verse 13. Now, when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Well, at first sight, this passage, it just seems like Jesus is nothing more than the victim of an evil tyrant, a political refugee, if you like. We're fairly familiar with this kind of situation as we look back on 2015. ISIS, with its evil ideology, just bent on destroying life, and as a result, well, millions of refugees... Forced to flee their homes in search of safety. It's such a familiar story. The masses suffering at the whims of a selfish leader. We see it all around the world. Herod, intent on protecting his grasp on power. Willing to do anything to anyone who will stand in his way. Even a little baby like Jesus. The thing is, though, if we stop there, we will miss the point of this passage entirely. I don't know if you noticed, but in our passage, we are given two explanatory words from God. Uh, These explanatory words are meant to help us see these horrific events, as bad as they are, from God's point of view. Uh, The first one is there in verse 15. Quotation from the Old Testament, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, has God lost control? Is the the powerful tyrant Herod in charge and running the show? Well, not at all. We're meant to see here God is the one controlling The chessboard. He is the one always one step ahead of Herod. Uh, We see it with the dreams. Do you notice that in verse 13? This is now the third time God has intervened with a dream in these two chapters to save his son. Uh, Have a look at chapter 1, verse 20 on the previous page. The angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12, just before our passage, another dream, an angel appears to the wise men warning them not to return to Herod. And so chapter 2, verse 13, the third time, Joseph, again, instructed in a dream, flee to Egypt, and there'll be two more dreams in verse 19 and 22 as well. See, it might look like King Herod is running the show, pulling the punches, But it is God who is really in charge. God who is moving things as he wishes to fulfill his purposes. And that is underlined for us with this quotation in verse 15 from the Old Testament. It's from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, I want to check that you are listening carefully to what I'm saying. So I've got a question. And you're going to tell me the answer in a moment. I'm going to read Hosea 11 verse 1 from the Old Testament in its original context. And you need to answer this question for me. Who is it about? Who did God call out of Egypt? Okay, ready? Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. Who's it about? Israel. That's a bit of a shock, isn't it? I mean, it's, the quotation in Hosea is talking about how God rescued Israel out of Egypt during the time of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, we read, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may serve me. See, Egypt was a significant place for the Israelites. Egypt was the birthplace of the Israelite nation. It was the place where God called Israel to be his son, to be his people, to have a relationship with him, to belong to him, to serve him. But as we read the the Old Testament story further, we see it's just one sorry tale of Israel's failure, As God's son, sin, idolatry, evil, again and again and again. And so as Hosea chapter 11 goes on, it speaks of the judgment that has come upon this people. And we read in Hosea 11 verse 5, Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars. Their gates. See, the context of this quotation is Israel's failure, God's judgment. To slavery they would go once more. In Hosea's time, the Assyrians would come. In Jesus' time, it was the Romans. But either way, God's people stood under his judgment, needing a savior. And in Hosea 11, It's a beautiful chapter if you get time to read it. God promises that he will send a Savior, that he will bring his people back one day. God promises that he will bring his people forgiveness. And so as God takes Jesus down to Egypt, the birthplace of the Israelite nation, it's as if God is declaring that long promised day of salvation, well, It's about to dawn. Jesus is being painted here as the true Israel, the one who will bring the true exodus. Throughout the pages of Matthew's gospel, we will see Jesus retracing the footsteps of Israel. Uh, He'll go through the waters of baptism just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea. He'll be tempted in the desert for 40 days just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. And again and again we will see Jesus, the true Israel, the true Son of God, succeeding where Israel had failed. Living the life of perfect love and service to God that Israel never failed. It was able to do. The trip down to Egypt, you see, is the beginning, a new beginning. It's the, it's the announcement, if you like, that God's salvation plan is about to begin. And what glorious good news that is. There's a fresh start available for those who have forsaken him. There can be a fresh start for sinners like you and me held in captive like slaves to sin and death. Now, one of the things we uh, love to do at the end of the year is to look back on the year that's passed and to look forward uh, to the year ahead. And there's been some great things and some awful things in 2015, but we tend to make our New Year's resolutions. I'm not really a fan of them. Uh, Partly it's probably because my wife would love me to have my New Year's resolution to do more exercise or something like that. I don't know what yours is. Spend more time with the kids, uh, go to church more, uh, improve in this hobby, get rid of this bad habit. I don't know what it is. don't know what last year has been like for you. It may well be, though, that in 2016 you need... A fresh start with God. Now, maybe in 2015 you've, you've wandered off into some sin. Maybe you've been wandering from God from, for quite some time now. Maybe you've worked out that no amount of good you can do or religious actions does anything to, to take off that burden of guilt that is on your heart. But God is saying here, as he brings Jesus down to Egypt, a fresh start is available. Jesus came to succeed where you and I have failed. He is the true Israel who perfectly loved and obeyed God. The journey to Egypt marks the dawn of God's glorious salvation plan. But point two, Matthew wants to show us that the, the dawn of this glorious day of salvation comes, well, in the context of a very dark night of human rebellion. In, in verse 16, the, the scene shifts from Egypt to Jerusalem, from Joseph to Herod, and Herod, realizing he has been tricked, takes this vicious course of action. Have a look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time he'd ascertained from the wise men. Well, it's such a short, clinical description of what must have been an absolute tragedy. I mean, can you imagine it? Crying children ripped from the arms of their parents, swords dripping with the blood of little babies, parents screaming in grief as they stand helpless. And all for what? The insecurity of a paranoid king who would do anything just to keep rule of his own kingdom. There's no doubt to the historicity of these events, Herod was indeed an evil man, and we've got many accounts of his actions. Uh, When he came to rule, he he executed the the remnant that was left of the previous dynasty. He killed half of the Sanhedrin as well, just in case. In the last year of his reign, he killed his wife, he killed his mother-in-law, He killed his three sons just in case they wanted to take the throne early. And as he lay on his deathbed, worried that no one would actually grieve for his death, he was probably right, he gathered all the important noblemen of Jerusalem, gathered them together into a stadium so that as as he died, and it was announced that he died, they would be slaughtered and there'd be plenty of people to mourn at his passing. At one level, this verse is just a hideous genocide by a deluded madman. It's a picture of the heights of human sinfulness. And it flies in the face of how so many assess our world. So many of us, people open the newspaper or they read on the news of the tragedies that continue to just sweep across our globe. And they have no answer. Our leaders have no answer. I mean, why must ISIS crucify little children? Why must Boko Haram strap bombs to young girls and send them into marketplaces to blow themselves up? Why Paris? Why the corruption that plagues society? Why the constant oppression of others just to get my own way in life? Our world has no answers to those questions. It keeps on saying, oh, we're basically all good. But the Bible has the answer. The Bible understands what people are like and if we've truly understood the meaning of the christmas message those things should be no surprise because jesus came as the christ to claim ultimate rule over all people everywhere and of course where that message is preached it is no surprise that it has pushed back that christmas might be banned proselytizing banned christians persecuted Herod's actions show us that if you reject Jesus as Lord, well, anything is on the cards. Jesus' claim to rule our lives is a direct threat to our own selfish desire for self-rule, for self-autonomy. And Herod paints for us the depths of the human heart that will do anything to avoid letting Jesus be king. I wonder if you've encountered this kind of resistance to Jesus in your family, in your workplace. It is no surprise. But once again, God gives an explanatory word in verse 18 to help us see these things from God's perspective. Because without the word, it it just seems like evil wins, that violence goes unchecked, despair overcomes hope. But God's explanatory word in verse 17 and 18 helps us see this awful slaughter. And awful it is from God's point of view. Verse 17, take a look at it with me. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The quotation this time comes from Jeremiah 31, the turning point of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Rachel, if you might remember, was the, the wife of, well, the second wife, I guess, of Jacob. She was regarded as the mother of Israel, and if you read in the Genesis account, Ramah, located just outside Bethlehem, was the place where she was buried. Now, why is she weeping? Well, the first 30 chapters of Jeremiah tell us in horrifying detail. Israel had turned their back on God, and his judgment had fallen. The Babylonians had come, destroyed Jerusalem, carried off the people to exile. And as the exiles were carried along, they were taken to the concentration camp just outside Ramah on their way to Babylon. And as they went, suffering under the judgment of God, there was Rachel, weeping in her grave, the judgment on her people. See, this explanatory word helps us to see that the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem is itself a horrific picture of what it looks like to live under the judgment of God. See, when we push off God and we say, I don't want you in my life, I don't want you to rule, I'm going to do it my way, thank you, this is the kind of world that we get a world of utter desolation as God gives up people to carry out their evil to the suffering of all. Again, does this not explain the world in which we live? We live in a world that's turned its back on God, a world that denies Jesus' rightful rule. It doesn't matter if it's done in a religious way, or an atheistic way our world rejects Jesus again and again and we see the bitter fruit every time we turn on the news human beings committing horrific acts getting rid of anyone who stands in their way as they reject Jesus to live for themselves now in a world like that it is so easy is it not to live in despair, to be fearful as Christians, to wonder if, well, evil is actually going to win and there is no hope for us. But that is where this explanatory word is so important for us. Because again, like the first one, it turns everything upside down. It turns despair to hope. The, the quotation is from Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, talking about the judgment of Israel. But if you look it up, as we did in our Old Testament reading, and read the very next verse, you will find a glorious promise of hope from God to his people. I'll read it again. Jeremiah 31, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. In other words, even as Israel weeps because of God's judgment on their sin, they can look forward with hope because God had promised to his people an end to the exile, an end to his judgment, a return to relationship with him, a new covenant in which their sins would be forgiven once And for all. And so the slaughter of the infants, Matthew realizes, is this watershed moment in history where the dark night of human sin breaks. The dawn arrives as Jesus enters the world to bring God's glorious salvation plan. This is, of course, the good news of Christmas, isn't it? that God did not abandon us or our sin-stained world. He didn't leave us in the consequences of our sin forever. No, God came down in the person of his Son. He entered our world with all its brutality, with all of its evil. And having lived the perfect life of love and service to God, he would go to the cross... As the true Israel, to bring that ultimate exodus from sin and death, to bring about the ultimate return from the exile, the exile of the garden, to bring us the forgiveness promised by Jeremiah, the promise of new life to all who will trust in him. Here is the dark night before the dawn of salvation breaks. And so how do we respond to this word this morning? Well, two applications as we close. Firstly, we see here in Herod's vicious acts the ugliness of human sin. See, Jesus' claim to ultimate authority over our lives inevitably means there will be opposition. Don't be surprised at the lengths people will go to to resist the rule of Jesus. For Jesus' rule is a challenge to our own. If Jesus is king, then we cannot be king any longer. Matthew makes it very stark for us here. He says, in the end, there's only two sides when it comes to Jesus. There's the side that the wise men portray. You can love him, rejoice in him, worship him. Or you can join Herod's team, resist his rule, seek to destroy him. It's very stark. wonder which side you find yourself this morning, loving Jesus, worshipping, rejoicing in his rule. Or like Herod, troubled, angry, resisting. Well, in a crowd like this, there is bound to be people who have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus. And if that is you, please see the seriousness of that stance. Resisting Jesus' rule is like aligning yourself with Herod. I'm not saying you've killed children. But resisting Jesus' rightful rule of our lives is as ugly as that. And so, if you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus as King of your life, then can I urge you this morning stop the rebellion, submit to his loving rule. He came into this world to bear the suffering and judgment that we deserve, he came to bring you a fresh start. He lived that perfect life that you and I could never live. He suffered the darkness of evil in our place at the crops. He came that the dawn of salvation may come. Will you turn to him this Christmas? Make a fresh start in 2016 with Jesus as Lord of your life. Secondly, we see here God's sovereignty in bringing salvation out of evil. It is easy to despair as we look around the world and the awful things happening around us. Our passage helps us to see opposition to Jesus and his rule is inevitable. But it also forces us to understand that it will not in the end ever succeed. See, God is sovereign, fulfilling his plans, even in the face of darkness and evil. Mary may have been stoned to death as an adulteress. Jesus may have been killed by this evil King Herod, but no, God was in charge. God's hand was, was upon him. God was working out his plan. Jesus may have been falsely accused, arrested, flogged, mocked, put on a cross to die. But God was still in control. He was still achieving his salvation plan. Wicked men put him on the cross and God raised him from the dead to rule. No amount of darkness or evil will ever extinguish the light of Christ's rule. So, as we enter an uncertain year ahead, we do not need to fear. Even as our world rebels against Christ's rule, even as our world suffers, and we too, God's judgment on our sin, even as authorities ban Christmas, ban evangelism, ban crosses, or whatever it's going to be next, be reminded God is sovereign. It will not ultimately succeed. Jesus is on the throne, and already out of the darkness of human rebellion, God's age of salvation has arrived. As we look to a new year, may we be those who resolve above everything else to let Jesus be the Lord of our life, to rejoice in the fresh start that he has given us. And may we be those who hold up the light of Christ and tell many others of this glorious fresh start available in Jesus to those who are still in the darkness. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you, for you are sovereign over all things. We thank you that in the midst of the darkness and evil of our world, that we need not fear, that Jesus is still on the throne, that you are fulfilling your salvation plan through him. We thank you, you sent Jesus into this broken world that each one of us may have a fresh start with you. That he lived the perfect life we could not. He died to take the punishment we deserve. And he rose again as Lord. And so we pray that you'd help each one of us as we head into 2016 to be trusting and following Jesus as the king of our lives and holding out the glorious light and hope of the gospel to this dark and dying world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.